Let's pray. We come this morning, O Lord, from many different places, and we ask that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to what you might have to say to us through your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Almost 60 years ago, the American children's book author, Dr. Seuss, who you I'm sure be familiar with, wrote a book called The Sneetches. Raise your hand if you know The Sneetches. It's a good one, isn't it? In The Sneetches, like many of his stories, fictional animal-looking people have their opportunities and their social status determined by their appearance. He says, the star-bellied Sneetches had none had bellies with stars, while the plain belly sneeches had none upon thars. These differences are exploited then by a character called the fix-it-up chappy. That is, until the sneeches wise up to the injustice and the irrationality of it all and decide to band together to celebrate their common sneechhood. It's a story that was speaking to the American experience of racial segregation. It was meant to help children understand that the color of one's skin has nothing to do with, as King said, the content of one's character. If we think of our current context, here we are in the lead up to this election, and there, of course, in America is the perpetual election that happens all the time. And the news cycles are fixed on all that comes with people trying to either stay in power or wrest power away from the status quo. And amidst all of this, we often encounter rhetoric that is hyperbolic and sometimes shocking. America is not the only place, unfortunately, where lines like take back our country resonate, as we've learned. And there's plenty of room for things like accusations and mudslinging, promises of a better future, and of course, the scapegoating of problems. Now, if you read Paul's letter to the Romans, apparently these things are not new. There were lots of things that divided people in the ancient church as well, in Rome, in the capital of empire. Some of the same issues that plague us as modern people plagued them. There were divisions on all manner of things. There was divisions around what the day of the Lord was, what the day that people were supposed to gather for public worship. There were divisions around food rules, purity laws, and ritual observances, whether they were still binding on everybody or just some. All manner of things threatened to divide the church, and there was a lot of finger-pointing going on. There were wrong people and right people, and both of these people wrote to Paul saying, help Help me sort these other people out. And it seems that Paul was interested in warning them that their convictions, handled in the wrong way, could backfire, could become the same thing as being wrong altogether. Many of us have very strong convictions. I certainly do. We all have, on some level, strong convictions. And most likely there will be things that we will disagree with others about, Um, If we look at the political landscape, there's always a lot of zeal, and zeal is a good thing. Zeal is an important thing, particularly when it comes to change. It's important to have a vision. um, But we have to make sure that zeal doesn't, in a slippery way, become judgmentalism. 
um, and very easily can turn into vitriol, which can be very divisive. The 6th century spiritual leader, St. Benedict, who you might be familiar with, he differentiated between good zeal and what he called bitter zeal. And in a wonderful commentary on the rule of St. Benedict, the contemporary Benedictine nun, Joan Chitzitzer, she writes that bitter zeal wraps us up in ourselves and it makes us feel holy about it. Bitter zeal renders us blind to others, deaf to those around us, struck dumb in the face of the demands of dailiness. Good zeal commits us to the happiness of human community and immerses us in Christ and surrenders us to God, minute by minute, person by person, day after day. Good zeal provides the foundation for spirituality that can last the long haul. Once again, we come back to this point that happens over and over, particularly in Paul's letters to these new communities, whenever conflict arises. This important belief that as Christians there is an added dimension to what we believe, and that is how we believe. The way we hold our convictions, the way we communicate them matters, especially to those who might be weak in our midst. Historically, Christian communities have been divided over all kinds of issues. Uh, The version of the Bible we read has been very contentious. Whether we come forward to receive communion or we get it served to us in our seats has also been a point of contention. Whether we call communion the Lord's Supper, communion, or the Eucharist has also been another dividing line. And if you look around the world, even in your lifetimes, you can honestly say that religious religion and judgmentalism can lead to real violence in places like Northern Ireland and the Middle East, Africa, and other places. So this is far from an academic point that Paul is making. It's relevant to societies and lives, and it has real impact. There's a deep theological point that Paul's trying to make that I want to make sure we don't miss. His claim is that in Jesus Christ, God has opened God's arms to all and invited us in, reconciled. This radical hospitality that Paul has pointed to when he says, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. God has an ultimate claim on all of us, regardless of our, um, our opinions or our convictions. We are not the ultimate arbiters of right and wrong. God is. Uh, We are free to follow any conviction of our hearts. That's the beauty. Everything is allowable. Not everything's beneficial, but everything's allowable. And, but each one of us owes it to the other to reflect God's love and God's welcome and God's hospitality and to ensure that the way that we hold our convictions do not threaten others' feelings of belonging. Now, this is hard work. It is hard work. Anyone who's been around church long enough knows that living together in harmony is hard work. I have to admit, I've met some people, and I've doubted my own ability to reflect God's love and acceptance in the face of vitriolic attack, um, accusation, finger-pointing. How do we stay together? Well, one of the things that comes to mind is the story from Matthew's gospel, the story of Jesus being asked by Peter, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? And Jesus saying, no, try 70 times seven. This concept of unlimitless forgiveness that Jesus 
is invoking is one of the signals, one of the glues that binds human communities together, whether it's marriages or families or communities or churches or synagogues or whatever. Forgiveness. In the story that then Jesus tells Peter, we encounter a story that none of us want to believe is true. And I say that because at the heart of the story is a vision that disturbs. The king in this story, the Lord, is unforgiving because the slave will not forgive another slave. In many ways, forgiveness happens on the level of the imagination. And so this is why Jesus tells a story in the form of a parable. Because the parable is supposed to bypass our rationality and speak directly to our imaginations. Oftentimes, a new vision of our lives or a possibility can only be given to us in a dream. In a dream. And this is one of the functions of parables in the New Testament. In the story, the king forgives a major debt of the servant, but then the very same servant does not forgive the tiniest debt. At the power of the story, I think, is that forgiveness is something that you have to consistently commit yourself to believing in. We think about having faith in God quite a bit, but another aspect of our faith is that we have to believe that forgiveness works. We have to believe that forgiveness is real. We have to believe that we are forgiven, that we are forgivable. Because when we don't forgive, when we are judgmental, when we draw the line, it's often a projection. It's often what we don't like in somebody else. It's an aspect of what we don't like about ourselves. That which we cannot forgive in somebody else is often an aspect of what we already think about ourselves, that we are unforgivable in some ways. And so there is this aspect that Jesus is saying, right, that the torture, the torture of unforgiveness, right, is to lack the imagination, to lack the ability to see yourself as a person who's capable of being forgiven and capable of forgiving others. That that in and of itself is a prison that we lock ourselves into, that we hold the key to, that we often say God does to us, but it's very much something that lies squarely in our hands. And we see this shown very clearly, this lack of imagination, this lack of vision, the need for it in the Chronicles of Narnia. So in the book, The Last Battle, Tyrion and the children pass through the stable door, that's the metaphor for death. And beyond death, they find they're still in Narnia. And they find that they're in glorious sunshine. And the most splendid feast is laid out on the grass. And it's a reference to and a picture of the great feeding stories of the kingdom of God in all the gospels. And all of their kind of overtones of how God's going to heal everything up in the end. And then there are some dwarves who are not on the side of Aslan the king, and they are also killed. And they enter through the same door where they find the same feast on the same sun-drenched day. But all they can see when they look at the feast is that they are in a darkened and a filthy stable, and the food in the manger is contaminated filth. The servant in the story doesn't believe he's truly forgiven. And so he couldn't pass that along. And I wonder if that's the hardest part of living together in community, believing that we're worthy of forgiveness, that we are forgivable. Seems to me that we often condemn in others or judge something that reminds us of the worst version of the story that we tell about ourselves. 
So it follows that if we want, um, if we are to forgive anyone, if we're to live at peace with anyone, we first have to start with believing that we're forgiven, that we're forgivable, that we're capable of passing it forward. The place of belonging begins with that notion of self-love. Now, we've been redoing our sign outside the church. And like all things Presbyterian, it's taken about two years. There's about 14 words on the sign, but, you know, it's taken about two years. Um, And we're not there yet, by the way. Please pray. (laughs) Please pray that we'll get it before I leave. Um, And one of the things that we want to do on the sign is that we want to show people and signal to people that we're a welcoming group that we want anyone and everyone to come and be a part of our church, that we don't want anything that someone believes about themselves or anything that they think Christians might believe about who they are to stop them from walking through the doors uh, and encountering acceptance and love and grace and all these things that we want to hang ourselves out to be. Um, And that's proving difficult because you know what? The point is, is that almost every church says that they welcome everybody, and that's just not true. Um, everybody says everyone's welcome here. But I've heard a lot of stories of people who've walked into those churches and walked out and go, no, everyone except for me, apparently. <laughs> and so it's a difficult thing to do. It's not just about words on a sign, but words on a sign matter. I came across this story um, from American National Public Radio about Coventry Cathedral. Last year I was in um, the UK on study leave for two months, and one of the things I started doing every week, because I had a rail pass, was I decided that I want to see as many of these old cathedrals as possible. And on Thursdays, it was possible for me to get up really early, get to the station, and basically organize myself to kind of be able to travel one or two hours on a train, spend three or four hours in a cathedral city, and then two hours back to Cambridge, which is what I did almost every Thursday. And I went to uh, Canterbury Cathedral, and I went to York one day, and Westminster, and St. Paul's, and all these amazing... And when I went to the UK, I had no desire to see cathedrals. But when I went to the first one, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. This place is like, it's just thick. There's something going on here. And, um, and so my bucket list one, and the reason I tell you the story, is that I got COVID my last week there. Remember, I got COVID the last week. And I was really sick. Um, and that, least, that last week, I had planned to go to Coventry Cathedral, um, which, if you know anything about Coventry, has this amazing story. And I didn't get to go there, so it's on my bucket list. And I'm obsessed with Coventry Cathedral. So those of you who have been there, uh, you can you know, talk to me about it. But um, there was this amazing news story on National Public Radio out of the States a few years back about the story of the cathedral and how, in 1940, it was destroyed in the Blitz. Um, and it was just rubble. And I think I've got some pictures up there, so I want to show you. That's the, that's the cathedral after the bombing on the left. So there's the nave and everything, and the rest of the building is in, in tatters on the floor. And then that's the rebuild. That's what they built afterwards. Um, and uh, on the outside exterior of the old cathedral wall, the medieval, this is a cathedral that dates back to medieval times, um, they engraved these words, Father, forgive. Father, forgive. So that outside, as you're walking around, there's a cross there, there's a table, and behind, on the outside of the building, which was once part of the medieval cathedral that was bombed and destroyed, are the words, Father, forgive. And the congregation decided to build the new cathedral next to the remains of the old. They didn't demolish the old. They decided to 
keep the remains of the old cathedral next to this new cathedral that they were going to build. But now, decades later, the people who run the cathedral are wanting to um, do something and say something about um, being a place of welcome and hospitality and forgiveness in the midst of a world that is very divisive um, and filled with fear, um, and in particular the fear of others. And so they've erected a sign and uh, a pew, a sign that they put outside and one in the, in the bottom of the pews. And I want to read this sign to you. It says, we extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, widowed, straight, gay, confused, well-heeled, or down at the heel. We welcome wailing babies and excited toddlers. We welcome you whether you can sing like Pavarotti or just growl quietly to yourself. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, you just woke up, or you just got out of prison. No matter what color you are, you're welcome here. We don't care if you're more Christian than the Archbishop of Canterbury or haven't been to church since Christmas 10 years ago. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but still not grown up yet and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome keep fit moms, football dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems, are down at the dumps, or don't like organized religion. We're not keen on it either. We offer welcome to those who work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or are here because Granny is visiting and wanted to come to the cathedral. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down their throats as kids, or just got lost and wound up here by mistake. We welcome pilgrims and tourists, seekers, doubters, and you. When asked about the sign, the current rector of the cathedral said in an interview, it's simply about being a place where people can leave their differences at the door and come into conversation with one another and with God. Now, I'm not sure about leaving differences at the door because I think we should bring them into the door and we should talk about them and we should ask questions about them and we should learn from each other. But when I think of what Jesus was talking about, the power of unforgiveness, right? That it's just this radical alternative to what the world is about. When I think about what Paul is on about, about forgiving each other, about not judging each other, about being able to think differently and believe different things, but still maintaining this aspect that we belong to God, and in the end, God will judge whether what we believe is right or wrong. Leave it to God. And I see this sign, I see this posture of the cathedral in Coventry, and I think the story behind it, I think, yeah, I think they're in the direction that Paul and Jesus were talking about. And I hope that we will continue to be in the direction that Paul and Jesus were talking about as well. And with God's help, we will. Amen.